Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies. This time we're not talking about a film that's played at the Trilon or that we expect to play at the Trilon because their programming schedule is overlapping some episodes we already did. Last week we did Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was my pick. We're going boy, boy, boy and picking movies that we uh, really wanted to talk about for whatever reason. Um, sort of a no holds barred, uh, but the richer the conversation, the better. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. I am a dirty old imposter and you can find me at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, the one and only, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry Mackin. My pop idol image is suffocating me, but you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron Grossman, the real thing, and you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. Uh, I will not be introing this movie, but I will say off the top uh, content warning for multiple discussion points, including uh, acts of violence and sexual aggression, uh, sexual violence and rape, um, and a whole lot of very uncomfortable subject matter we'll touch on. Uh, but I'll I'll let Harry actually take this one away for her summary because it's his pick. <laughs> wow, what a great uh, toss. Thank you, Jason. Yes, mm-hmm. I picked the, uh, the movie that prominently features sexual assault. Hello, <laughs> uh, my name is Harry. Um, yeah, so this is Perfect Blue. It's the 1970, or 1970, 1997 movie, um, that was Satoshi Kon's, uh, feature debut. Um, I pick it because it's a, a favorite of, uh, mine and Jason's and not, I don't think the kind of movie that we'll ever get a chance to see at, um, the Trilon, but it's one that Jason and I have talked a lot just personally about. Um, we both have seen it multiple times in theaters, uh, at the Uptown and, and other places for midnight. Um, we're both really big anime fans as we've discussed at length on this podcast. Um, so I, I chose this movie because, uh, it's one of the anime movies most worth talking about in my opinion, uh, both in terms of its historical context and in terms of just the fact that, um, it's a, a great movie, a really important movie in my opinion. Um, and so I seemed like the perfect pick for something like this, uh, an opportunity that we might not get the chance to talk about under the normal sort of parameters of our show. Um, so Aaron has the patented Grossman summary for us. If you would like to take it away, Aaron, thank you. Patented Grossman summary. They, they pay me several thousand dollars per, per summary in order to use the rights. Uh, yes. Perfect blue 1997 directed by the late great Satoshi Kone. Uh, Perfect Blue follows the character of Mima Kirogi, uh, Kirigo, uh, Kirigo, a moderately successful, uh, pop idol who has started to make a career turn toward, uh, being an actress, uh, as she leaves the life of J-pop stardom behind, her manager and her agent argue over the direction that her career should take as she is asked to, uh, act, uh, uh, in increasingly dark, violent, and sexual roles. She is also troubled by an apparent male stalker who visits her on the set of the show that she's acting on, uh, as well as appears to write an online blog from her perspective that describes her life in kind of startling detail. Uh, she slowly begins to lose grip on reality as her own perception of her career, stardom, and self, uh, 
uh, begins to fall apart. Uh, Mima is voice acted by Junko Iwao. Uh, Rumi, who, who is uh, Mima's manager, is voice acted by Rika Matsumoto. And Tadakoro, uh, her agent, is voiced by Shimpachi Tsuji. Uh, although Perfect Blue was not the first project that Satoshi Kon had worked on, it was, uh, as, as mentioned, his first kind of full feature film, and it would end up being one of uh, his four uh, full feature films that he would direct before his tragic passing in 2010. Uh, so, Harry, uh, I guess start us off. You mentioned why you picked this movie, but I guess watching it again, uh, what were what were your thoughts? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that Satoshi Kon um, is sort of the late great anime director of our time, right? I think that this is also an opportunity to talk about him and his legacy and the fact that he was he had such an outsized influence on film, both in the West and um, in anime um, in Japan. Um, and this is sort of like Jason, you described it, I believe as his codex, uh, which I really like because there are a lot of recurrent themes and motifs throughout his filmography, um, both in terms of, uh, his, his films and his show paranoia agent. Um, and they, they really all do sort of, um, spiral around this, this movie, um, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I really, really adore this movie. Obviously I think that's probably apparent. I've called it, um, and this is maybe only a little bit overselling it, but the most prescient movie of the nineties. Um, I think that this is a movie that talks about, um, the coming internet and the coming internet culture and how that is going to, um, not necessarily alter the way that society works in the way that, um, for instance, uh, sexism and misogyny and um, celebrity culture and identity work in the modern age, but it is going to exacerbate certain elements of those things and certain dark um, exploitative elements of those things. Uh, it, it captures the sort of um, the, uh, the uh, feeling or the, the character of the the coming age in a really, really profound uh, way. It really gets it right in a way that I don't think a lot of movies ever have, um, which is wild when you consider that it's prefiguring a lot of that, right? I mean, there are a lot of, um, there are scenes in this devoted in part to explaining the internet and how the internet works, right? And that is not only actually sort of like, it's, thematically resonant and and important because those become that becomes symbolism in the movie but it's also literally there to explain to audience members who might not fully understand what the internet is how it works right like like when they explain what um what Mima's room is they're explaining what an internet homepage is to Mima but also to the audience and then the idea of the internet homepage and what it means and what it represents becomes a very important symbolic idea here. Um, and using all of that, using the sort of like um, the way that that society is going to shift and change in the way that celebrity culture, pop idol culture, the entertainment industry, the acting industry, how those things work and affect and intersect to control and shape identity, um, particularly for women. Um, it uses that to make some really um, impressive and uh, poignant claims about the way that modern identity and contemporary sort of um, identity making works 
uh, in the in the age of the internet and in the age of celebrity um, and in the age of sort of like a brand or a production of self um, that that intersects really well with just sort of like a, a deep understanding of existentialism in terms of identity making um, and overall just sort of like in my mind like really creates produces a realized thesis about what it is to be a person in the modern age in a way that like very very few movies have and in a way that satoshi Kon would later um extrapolate further on later in his career so it's it's just like it's a brilliant movie in my mind and like really one of the um essential texts of its time um which is uh important to talk about right so I will pick it up from there. Um, as Harry said, uh, we've both seen this movie quite a few times. I'm really glad that we're doing this short series because I feel like it's uh, turning into a bit of a, a bit of a catharsis for some movies that, um, you know, the, the whole structure of Try Love allows us to touch on movies that we might not have otherwise seen. And now we're sort of playing the inverse of that, where we're uh, talking about movies we n- normally wouldn't have gotten to talk about in, in a lot of contexts, uh, or at least in this specific context. Um, that's, that's all babbling. Uh, I have seen this movie quite a bit i've you know like like if like harry said we've just sat and talked about it and works of satoshi Kon for a good while the first time i saw perfect blue would have been oh gee uh maybe during college because i caught on to paprika um just a couple of years after it released and maybe before satoshi Kon's death i'm not i'm not sure um i sort of had fallen off of the anime bandwagon partway through high school just because I wasn't uh, interacting with as many people as were into it. So I was, you know, less incentivized to watch and become part of the community. But uh, for some reason, Paprika uh, piqued my interest. It was the first Satoshi Kon movie I saw. And then it took me a couple of years before I went back to Perfect Blue. And now I'm a big fan of the whole filmography. Um, I don't know how much more I can really add than what Harry uh, said. I, I've, I've read a lot about this movie and how a, like most of the conversation is around the sort of characters and archetypes that have arisen uh, around the internet and around celebrity fame and around parasocial relationships uh, in the, with the dawn of the internet um, at the, in the late nineties and particularly into the mid two thousands. But nothing that really delves much further than that. It's just like, isn't it creepy that this sort of reflects it's a mirror for, you know, like you could update the technology and it would still work today as, you know, uh, as cultural criticism, as, as social, um, you know, statement. Uh, I, I'm hoping that we can go even further than that into sort of, you know, the, uh, I guess the exegesis of identity in a way where, where I, I want to see what we can really say or figure out about, um, you know, how much, uh, how many layers and how, like, what else is being said there beyond just like, isn't it weird? Isn't it creepy? Isn't it prescient? Uh, so I'm really hopeful about Harry's perspective, um, as, you know, obviously, like, I think he's going to be more eloquent than I am in bringing those points up. Uh, but, also, for, <laughs> we'll see. Did you hear me a second ago? <laughs> I, uh, I did. <laughs> trying to trying to trying to gas you back up, man. Uh, but also because I believe this was Aaron's first time watching this film, and it'll be really interesting to know, like. It, just for like uh, parting the kimono a little bit during Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's a movie all of us have seen. All of us feel, you know, pretty, uh, I won't say similarly, but we all have a, a pretty good familiarity level with that movie. And we were just talking through most of that movie. We were commenting, we were sort of very comfortably last night we were watching this movie together and it was, it was like just too tense, too intense to really like <laughs> commentate, you know? Uh, so I don't have the bead that I thought I would on, everybody else's opinion of it, except of course, Harry's we've had hours and hours of conversations about this movie. Um, but yeah, uh, suffice to say, I really love it. I have seen it in multiple formats and I'm looking forward to revisiting it over the years. Um, and, uh, and particularly today, I hope that this is, this can be sort of a, a crowning moment for my understanding of this movie is just like 
having a whole panel of folks to talk about it with. Um, and with that, I will toss it to Cody for his uh, top of the thoughts. Thanks. Yeah. Nice toss. Um, I caught it here. Uh, yeah, I've seen all four of Satoshi Kon's feature films, as well as his uh, miniseries or series, whatever you want to call it, Paranoia Agent. I just finished that the other day. Uh, Perfect Blue was the the second film of his that I had seen. I actually borrowed the Blu-ray from Jason a couple years ago. Shoutouts to Jason. Uh, and as of yesterday, it's the only Satoshi Kon work I've seen multiple times. So um, like his regrettably limited filmography is not as formative for me over you know, a longer span of my life as it might be for some of us here. But as far as an artist who has at least recently greatly affected and influenced uh, how I watch and appreciate film, he's a big one for me for sure. Uh, I guess one more tidbit is that his film Tokyo Godfathers was the last movie I saw in a theater before lockdown started. Oh, so that's, same. yeah, one more reason why his work has left uh, such an impression with me. Um, but yeah, Perfect Blue, it, uh, it feels overwhelmingly ambitious and that's on top of the fact that it's doing so much over the course of only 82 minutes uh much of its text is uh as it's been mentioned it's very haunting on its own uh but uh, it unfortunately really sings in a time like 2021 when we're dealing with you know things like overly toxic fandoms and pop idol pedestals um perpetually uh and their lives sort of becoming increasingly transparent and on display for uh for consumers like us uh a thing i latched onto with this viewing in part because i'm just coming off watching paranoia agent which i won't go into too much detail about because not everyone here has seen it um it was the the exploration of the ways in which uh people and capitalistic structures and the world in general try to you know convince and manipulate uh, you know, people, you know, you into thinking you are not a certain something or you are one of either this thing or that thing. In this case, it's like Mima needs to remain a pop idol and she can either be a singer or an actress. Those are the only spaces she can occupy, you know, creating sort of that weird binary. Uh, and in Perfect Blue and Paranoia Agent, there's sort of an express need for, um, again, as it's been mentioned, reclamation of identity, you know, an argument for people living complexly and living necessarily complicated and sometimes very, very difficult lives because it's what's real and sort of recognizing and accepting that we're all performing, even if we're not, you know, pop idols. Uh, and that's a sort of idea that I think would be hard to digest normally, but I, I think Harry said during our group watch something like, this is such an easy watch, which is wild to think about, uh, but it's also very correct, um, you know, right? Because Satoshi Kon has this weird way of scaring the ever-loving shit out of you while building a visual language that is complex but coherent and moves at a rhythm you can understand, which makes everything so much easier to take in. Uh, yeah, Perfect Blue is incredible. Uh, I can't wait to revisit Satoshi Kon's films again throughout my life. It's a tremendous loss for the entire world that he uh, isn't still here. But uh, on that somber note, I will toss it uh, over to Aaron. Oh, uh, missed that. Just didn't didn't catch it. Wasn't a big sports guy. Sorry. It's rolling. Got to pick it up. Oh, it's, it's headed for the oh, reset. Oh, okay. yeah, it's uh, I just made that. Jo- I was gonna make a joke about this movie killing my dreams of being a J-pop star, but uh, I just made that other <laughs> joke. So I'll just say that I was gonna say make that joke, and then then it's out there. Um, yeah, I'm I'm probably the least familiar with Satoshi Kon's work out of all of us on the pod. Not probably actually. I am factually, objectively, the least familiar. Um, I have seen now this. Uh, and I had seen in the past Paprika and Tokyo Godfathers exactly once. Uh, I had walked through a room once while Jason was watching an episode of Paranoia Agent. And that is my familiarity. I mean, I understand that with the 
uh, amount of the work that he worked on. That's actually at this point, the majority of it, uh, at least as mm -hmm. a kind of director. Um, but that is to say that I was kind of the least familiar and perfect blue was always a movie that I had heard, uh, I think kind of alongside, uh, paprika and millennium actress as, you know, kind of fighting for his best film. Um, so I was always, always very interested in it. Uh, that being said, I, I think that I didn't quite connect with Paprika and Tokyo Godfathers in the way that uh, most, maybe everybody else that on this podcast uh, had. Um, probably a timing thing, not sure. I was always quite charmed by uh, the animation uh, specifically, uh, the ideas that he fills his movies with. Uh, there's a, a kind of a general sense of empathy and warmth that seems to fill his works, uh, especially especially Tokyo Godfathers. Uh, but for some reason, I didn't really connect with like the the core of those films, which is probably a personal fault uh, more than a fault of, of the movies. Um, that being said, uh, that is not the case for Perfect Blue. This movie rocks. Uh, this movie rocks a lot. Uh, it probably is due to the fact that it resides in the female actor's self-perception and understanding of reality slowly fall apart genre, which turns out is maybe my favorite genre. I mean, Mulholland Drive is one of my favorite movies. So uh, I think the comparisons to that, uh, the film oh, yeah. Persona, the, the comparisons to Black Swan are, are well noted. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it helps, you know, this his is his first full feature. Uh, it's, in my opinion, and again, I haven't seen Millennium Actress, which maybe is in the, the conversation there, but this is of what I've seen of his, the most thematically and tonally coherent and consistent. It helps, I think, that it's a solid 80 minutes, uh, despite being such a hard film to watch. In a lot of ways, it goes down very, very easy. It's a weird thing to say. Um, but but overall, this is a like, especially for like a first film, uh, this is a remarkably well-realized movie. It's wild, man. Summation. Yeah, of, of like, you know, Satoshi Kon is like known for a bunch of different things, right? Uh, you know, kind of self-perception and dreams and kind of the blending of reality and fiction and, and where those two things cross the line. Uh, the internet and kind of the, the coming of this new age of technology and how that kind of warps how we present ourselves. All of that kind of stuff has been interesting in the films of his that I've seen in the past, but I think this movie just like absolutely nails it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, also last note, shout out to the music, uh, by Masahiro Akumi. Fuck uh, yeah. Really wonderful. Um, this may be just an ignorance thing on my part. Maybe this is like a whole bunch in a whole genre of music and whatnot. Uh, not familiar with, too much of like the soundtracks of, of anime films and shows and whatnot. Uh, but it seems very familiar to Kenji Kawai's work on the 1990, uh, 1995 film Ghost in the Shell. Uh, just kind of the use of these, uh, the strong like uh, technical uh, and like rhythmic uh, uh, passages with, with kind of choirs in the background that's used quite a bit during a lot of the more disturbing elements of this film that reminds me a lot of moments in Ghost of the Shell. We can talk about it, uh, but yeah, really love the music as well. So Overall, great film. Loved it. Thanks for uh, introducing me to it, Harry. Yeah. Uh, man, I'm so glad that we had Aaron and uh, Cody on this episode. You too, Jason, did a great job, but I feel like I was just sort of spilling because like, that is very much how my almost Satoshi Kone-like, right? Where like, there are so many ideas and there's so much to tackle in this movie that when I talk about it, I just sort of like, like bleed it all out. And so getting to hear... Uh, particularly um, Cody and Aaron who have different perspectives than I do was really valuable. So I'm super glad to hear uh, your thoughts on it. Uh, me too. I'm like, 
the Cody Aaron Codex here, like our balance of having two people on the podcast who are like somewhere in the middle or maybe completely more or less unfamiliar with our short series here is I think our saving grace. It's making it a really interesting thing to talk about. Um, I just want to add a little bit of context because some of what uh, all three of you were saying brought up um, some of the context around this movie uh, and we won't go too deep on Cone's uh, general career, but um, he was an established mangaka before making Perfect Blue. Uh, it was an adaptation of um, Yoshizaku Takeuchi's novel, Perfect Blue, Complete Mort- Metamorphosis. Uh, I've read this novel. Um, it was going to be an OVA uh, in you know longer in form, maybe split into parts prior to it being uh, like getting a stronger, more feature release. Um, it debuted at a film festival in 1997. Uh, but I guess the key here, like everybody's talking about the style and how quickly it moves, not quickly it moves necessarily, but how smoothly and how easily it moves, despite it being so tense and despite it being so horrific at times. Um, it said that there were about a hundred scenes cut from this movie uh, when it went from an OVA to a feature length film. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, and Cone, of course, you know, lamented it. And the whole team was like, well, that's, you know, part of the story we wanted to be able to tell. But honestly, it's it's assumed, I don't know if this is chronologued anywhere, but it's assumed that that is part of what forced him into this style mm-hmm. of very like melding the like, like live action filmmaking techniques, frankly, uh, you know, match cuts and smashes and all these things that like really break the form of animation to developed that style, which of course he would carry through to the rest of his uh, animated features and his series, obviously. Um, but like, I think that's a really interesting part of this is that it was a limitation, not necessarily like an, an a vision from the outset that, that brought, uh, Cone and his team to like creating the style of this movie. Um, there's, uh, just a quick little thing. There's also a tiny little, um, Easter egg in, uh, the photographer's apartment. There's the, <laughs> this might be too, uh, down the right. No, hole, please. But- but Satoshi Kon was, um, he wrote, uh, a graphic novel called, or sorry, it was a series, um, in, uh, Weekly Shonen magazine called Opus. Uh, and it was about a manga creator who gets pulled into his own work and he has to sort of save the day and, you know, whatever. It's, it's a little, little more straightforward and a little more bizarre than Perfect Blue. But, um, there's a character in there called The Mask. He is like the inherent creator who wants to destroy the world. And in the photographer's apartment in Perfect Blue, when, uh, you know, Mima is in there murdering him, blood splashes on a mask. That's the mask from Opus. Uh, so it's a little callback to his work because he didn't get to finish Opus before he ha- was forced to start working on Perfect Blue. I just think it's like there's a whole lot in this movie uh, as well about like the creation of making art, uh, like the yes. process of making art. And, you know, specifically with in, in the scenes where somebody's directing a TV show, you can feel like he's commenting quite a bit on the, his own process as a director and on, you know, the act of working with a team to make art. Um, you know, of course, he would go more into that in uh, Millennium Actress um, pretty heavily and even Paprika a little bit. But anyway, I just thought that it was a fun little callback to a thing that I did not notice because I had not watched this movie since I read Opus last year. Um, just a little bit of insight. But uh, Harry, your hand went up a few times there. I want to <laughs> I want to give you the stage. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I just I, I was struck by something that both you and um, well, that we, that we've all been talking about which is kind of a good way into this movie, right? Aaron mentioned that Satoshi Kon is known for being a very heady, very um, ambitious filmmaker. Um, When you talk about Satoshi Kon, you talk about philosophy and you talk about um, theology even, and um, you talk about the, the like the nature of identity and, and these big subject matters. Right. And this movie, as Cody noted, it's so ambitious and it's so like overwhelming, right? Like we had talked before we started this episode about how 
I was certainly intimidated to to talk about this movie, despite having seen it so many times and, and constructed sort of a, a central thesis of what I think it's about, just because where do you start with something like this, right? And it's fascinating to hear from you, Jason, that this movie maybe, um, to Aaron's point, it works even a little bit more coherently than Satoshi Kon's other movies, maybe because it was forced to be edited, right? It's It's interesting to mm-hmm. hear that because it's like, I actually think, though I feel more positively about Satoshi Kon's filmography on the whole, probably than Aaron does, that I agree with with some of what he said, which is that like I think that that movies like Paprika or Tokyo Godfathers or Millennium Actress they are so full of ideas and um, vision and genius that they almost can be too much, right? Like they're trying to do too much at once. Whereas this movie really handles it all, and it's really interesting to hear that like it was maybe going to be a little bit closer to the other movies longer and maybe a little bit less tight because of mm-hmm, all of the mm-hmm. ideas it had and, and way way closer to the novel i i've read this novel and it is way less like there are n- none of the like psychological horror elements or you know blending of realities elements in the book it is a far cry from from the movie in in most aspects except the barest plot elements That's so like wild. A, a net benefit that it was changed so drastically from conception through execution uh and i'm so glad like this is what we ended up with yeah. So I guess I wanted to sort of open the the um the conversation and, and just say like where do we want to start, right? Because like I was frustrated with my top level thoughts because I dwelled on identity and the internet and like those things are very important. But like even more than those things, this is a really great movie about sexism and about misogyny and internalized misogyny and systemic um misogyny and social uh, pressures that are leveled against all women and then specifically the entertainment industry, right? Like this is also probably, I haven't seen all of them, but like maybe the best movie about the idol phenomenon ever, right? And like one of the best about, uh, as Jason noted, parasocial relationships and um, celebrity culture that, that has ever been made. And it's doing all of that well-being psychological horror and well-being this commentary on modernity and the internet and the the coming shifts in how those things are going to affect identity and how they intersect with all of these other things, right? This movie sits at an intersection of so many different things. And that's before we even bring in the idea of, as Aaron noted, one of the best motifs or the best plot devices of this movie, which is the blending of reality and um, production and uh, art, right? Which is, which ties into what Jason had said about the, the, um, the making of art and it ties into um the desolate our um the destruction of uh agency on the part of mima right and so all of those things really sing and they all come together but it, it can be so difficult to take a single angle right to approach mm-hmm, this thing mm-hmm. from um so i guess what did what stuck out most to to each of you and like where do we want to start unpacking this thing now that we're halfway through the the podcast <laughs> Man, this is like such like a generic thing to say, uh, and we did say it while watching the movie. But like, this movie really did predict like the next it's unbelievable years of like the yeah, internet yeah. and like kind of figured out social media along the way before yeah, social media was a thing. The uh, way that this is like maybe the best GamerGate movie, and it came out in fucking nineteen ninety seven. I did not think of that, but yes, you 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 are correct. Uh, I think that I think like. Uh, stan culture in a weird way right which like especially with like the popularity of 
uh, K-pop and J-pop reaching like a new international audience, specifically in the last maybe like five years, maybe a little longer than that. I think that like there's a lot of this movie that like when you're watching it uh, really sticks out in that manner, especially this, you know, this is not a a post 9-11 movie. This is not like a early 2000s. This is 1997. Um, And a lot of that feels uh, uh, kind of amazing to watch. I also think the way that it handles uh, technology is is quite mature and that it is aged quite well. Obviously, there are a lot of, you know, kind of dated references to, you know, like the chat rooms and the Web page. And, you know, she's slowly typing out HTTP, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, But it doesn't feel cheesy in a way that I think a lot of uh, uh, entertainment does that focuses on internet uh, from that time period, because I think there is a, a kind of a core to it. It never loses sight of the fact that it is about identity and how, how right. you're perceived by people in a changing technological landscape. So that kind of all continues to work throughout the film. Uh, in my opinion, I, that, that stuff really stuck out to me personally. Sure. No, I, yeah, I'm very on board with that. I guess like the, the thing that helps me most like easily <laughs> dip my toes into the perfect blue waters is, you know, this idea of, you know, we've talked about um, uh, like identity and this sort of, I guess like it helps me to consider this movie from the, uh, like the idea of like, there's this, this sort of social arrangement where like, we're all allotted this space in which we can, figure out who we are, forge our own identity, you know, set out on that path. And that like the higher profile you have, you know, someone like Mima, who is like literally center stage for so many people, the higher profile you have, the more difficult it is to maintain that space. You know, that, that window is always open space is getting encroached upon. Um, and you know, like the, the more you give out to, you know, more people, the more it comes back and hits you. And, I don't know. I, this podcast isn't that popular, so I can't uh, attest to like how difficult it is to ju- juggle those types of expectations. I'm not famous, but like we can see from the perspective of Mima, like while she's forging her own identity, there are these other, you know, she's she's getting hit, but you you know by the things that are coming out of the void, and like the uh, again we're talking about the ambition of this movie and the sort of construction of visual space. And you know, we've uh, we've mentioned it here a few times, but like the the thing that really the the easy the not easy but like the really quick and, and efficient editing moves that this movie does, getting into the 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 second half, you know, kind of the latter acts of the movie where we're going through the days. Mima is at work, or is she at work? Is she playing a character? She's seeing a double of herself, and she, you know, the the director literally calls cut let's take it again and she wakes up the next day and it all comes together in this sort of even when she's not performing she is performing like the nature of finding identity is performance um i don't think everything that we'll necessarily talk about you plays to the same effect into that sort of thesis but like that's the one of the ways in which i can most easily you know conceptualize this movie and and make sense of it i don't know if that's necessarily a better jumping in point but i see hands are up so maybe bro i'm like i'm like the cat that swallowed the canary right now like this is what i've been this is what i've been (laughs) waiting for for my entire yeah um two things uh Aaron what really really brilliantly stated the the thing that works for me so well about this which is that I often feel that there is a tension at the heart of how art and and sort of like cultural criticism um assesses 
modern developing technologies, there, there's often this notion that it's going to change something fundamentally. Um, and I think that the best art, um, and this has always been true, this has been true since the advent of television, since the advent of uh, film, um, and certainly the, the internet and things like Facebook. I mean, the social network is another brilliant example of this sort of um, thesis statement. Um, the, the best of those works they they askew the the more easily attained narrative that that something is going to fundamentally change about how human beings are in favor of uh, instead pursuing this idea that human beings had actually always been this way and new technologies are giving us new ways to express ourselves and understand these elements of who we have always been better. Um, so there's some really brilliant literature about that 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 came out with the advent of. Um, uh, film. I'm thinking about like Henry James uh, and uh, Nathaniel West, and there are there are a lot of other great writers. Um, this movie does that in the sense that it is, in my mind, it's talking about how, uh, and this is this is going a little bit into what Cody said, uh, transitioning, but it's it's talking about how fundamentally. Um, Identity has always been constructive. It's always been performative and it's always been something that is affected and affecting and uh, affected by your environment and affected by the people around you and the course that your life takes. And it's always been something that you as a an agent, as a, as a person, a paranoia agent, if you will, hey, um, is is working. Oh, on. yeah. And I think that that what something like the Internet is doing is it is further blurring the primacy of what it is like to have a personal brand, a personal meme, if you will, a personal um, identity and a public facing one. It's it's arguing that um, those things are your public persona, your performed persona in uh, in film or in fiction and your public persona and your private persona, excuse me, they're not actually so different because they require the same, um, methods of creation. Uh, this is way too head ass now, but there's a, uh, there's a, a famous, um, book on, um, identity philosophy called the um, opacity of mind. I'm looking up who wrote Peter Carruthers um, that, that argues basically that you don't actually understand yourself better than other people do because you use the same um, like mental uh, means of understanding your own identity that you do other people's identities. You just have a couple of different um, types of insight into that. This is a movie that is prefiguring that, right? It's saying that, that actually like, the reason why uh, reality and fiction are starting to break down for Mima is that her agency has been stripped from her such that there isn't really that much of a difference, right? The person that she's trying to be in quote-unquote reality is not is not any more prime, is not any more authoritative than the person that she's trying to be in other circumstances. And in fact, other people have been able to write those characters for her. And this is a movie that's saying that that is not something that is new because it's something that has always been happening. It's something that has always happened to women, particularly. It's something that's happened to celebrities and idols, particularly. And I mean idols both in the literal pop idol sense and idols in terms of the the human being's sort of like capacity to project 
ideas onto people, right? That that becomes someone else and it becomes someone who doesn't belong to you. And the internet in the literal sense gives people full agents access to those things. But it's something that has always been true of people is that we have had to construct ourselves and we have had some capacity to construct one another. And with the advent of coming technology, those things are starting to blend the way that they were happening for Mima. And so you can see the really brilliant metaphor at the heart of this movie is not about how technology is necessarily fundamentally changing humanity, but it is about how as society changes, the things that have always been true are going to manifest in these frightening new ways and maybe lead to something that we haven't seen before and maybe cause reckoning with who we are and who we've always been, right? And that is the horror at the heart of Perfect Blue and the sort of thesis statement of identity there. And it's really, really brilliant and terrifying to to consider. Yeah, and it like it does so in way like it portrays those ways uh in Okay, so it portrays that effect in such a way as you wouldn't have been able to predict this. The us of 19, like humanity of 1997, Japanese society, American society, whatever, would not have been able to predict the ways in which our current day, like our perceptions of identity through technology and through the other would have formed. You know, like it is a statement on it and that I think formally, like the movie is very good at, uh, sorry, Perfect Blue is very good at using its um like all of its vagaries all of the like who is this character which like at what point was this character was mima mima at what point was she Rumi? at what point was it uh mimania at what point was it something completely else was it well like, and and also right like what level of fiction reality are we on right like oftentimes exactly. scenes will start as this movie begins in a constructed environment right it begins in the midst of a scene that's playing out and that happens multiple times where uh we'll cut to a new scene something will happen and then it will be revealed that that was the set of a movie that's being shot or mm-hmm. a television show or a commercial that happens multiple times sometimes it's a dream sometimes it's a show sometimes Sometimes it's something else entirely, right? Sometimes it's a, a hallucination, yeah. but all of those things are blended because they're all constituted from the same uh, materials. I just think that it's very wise in how it uses that muddying to push through the message of these things are things that will change that are already changing the way that we perceive ourselves and others and how we project, but we will not be able to like pinned down that way until it's happening, yeah. you know, uh, this and is it's, it's like, it's a retrospective thing, right? It's like now, now we know looking back that it had exactly. always been this. Exactly. But, but in 1999, exactly. Um, this is reminding me a lot of uh, one personal shopper and by extension, a piece that Harry wrote for unwinnable magazine a few years back called ghost in the machine, where he, I think you touched on these ideas very explicitly and very closely. Um, I will link that in the show notes, but, uh, Oh yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I I always joke that, um, if I was going to create like a, um, a series for the trine line, it would be like personal shopper and this and persona Bergman's movie and like, uh, Mulholland drive and then vertigo. Holy shit. Right. Because those would be the things that would be like the, yeah, that'd be the money, baby. Um, I think that we've sort of landed on that, uh, sort of that, the, the predicting the impact of, uh, of the internet on culture and identity and, you know, sort of assessing how art assesses that, uh, is, it has been our pretty good, uh, penetration point there. Um, because I think that mm-hmm. it, like there, the, the point at which Rumi introduces 
Mima to um, online services, basically gets her hooked up to the internet, is the point of no return for this movie. Uh, it is portrayed as like sort of a cute, fun moment where Mima is learning about what it means to be on the internet and learning, you know, like we already mentioned, she's like hesitantly typing in HTTPS. Uh, or I guess S wasn't a thing back then. Jesus yeah. Christ. Um, <laughs> just, I'm just sorry. Me. The IT guy on the call has to pipe up. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah, look, you you corrected yourself too, man. I, I know. I'm, hey, I'm it, that's really... actually thematically resonant when you consider that nobody was very secure. Nobody was secure. Back then. You, uh, you do. See, seeing her like uh, learn to use the internet, you are just as an audience member like, no, go back. Don't do it. Don't, yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Sorry, Jason, uh, continue. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was actually catching up on notes because I think it's going to make a good social clip. Uh, always be branding. Um, but uh, like, at, it's right at the end of act one, roughly, when Rumi it, like signs her up for the internet. Um, and then just like a few scenes later, we see Mima finally uh, like use the internet for herself. And she goes into Mima's room and, you know, she's <laughs> staring through the the dark mirror that is the internet without really knowing what she's doing or looking at. Um, she's like tickled by the specificity until it gets creepier. And, you know, that's where the horror and thriller vibes start to set in until she starts to realize that it's uh, some form of a stalker or that it's, you know, another force basically uh, that can see her. Like she has put herself there. She has been put there, but now she's afraid that somebody can see her. Uh, and that I think is like the turning point of that movie for me, because it's when she realizes that her life is because of this technology, because of the, um, you know, the sort of the forces that are moving in her life, her life is no longer her own. You know, she has become even more so than she was as an incredibly successful J-pop artist. She is now a public figure in the most literal sense in that like herself is deteriorating from that moment on. Right. And the, the literal metaphor at play there is that um, me mania, her stalker, uh, her obsessed fan is maintaining a homepage website where he speaks as her um, and and has a diary where he is um, filling in her thoughts and eventually digresses and begins to talk about how he is the real Mima. Uh, he wants to main, he wants to continue to be a pop idol, and this fake Mima, which is the the character we know as Mima, is the actress who is who is um, lying to herself and to um, her fans uh, to to try to like trick people into thinking that she's the real one. And then eventually, there's a, there's another like layer uh, here where it turns out that spoilers, uh, Rumi. Uh, her manager is the person who had been weaponizing me mania because she herself was obsessed with Mima's innocence um, in the sort of like symbolic virginal sense almost. Um, and was trying to relive her own um, life as a pop star through Mima and eventually assume Mima's identity. And so she had been feeding that, that email information to me mania um, and and weaponizing his obsession to try to get him to kill uh, Mima herself, and she had been killing these other people as Mima. And as Mima was sort of having this gaslight breakdown, that was what was going on behind the scenes, and all of that comes to a head. Um, Aaron, uh, go ahead. But I, I, it's really important that we talk about how, like, I think we've hit the critical intersection point um, where it's very important that this is happening specifically to Mima, right? Specifically to a pop idol, specifically to a woman, specifically to a woman in the entertainment industry. That is like the heart of what's so brilliant about this movie is that it, it is not just talking about identity on the whole. It's also talking about the the horrors of 
uh, a patriarchal society and the way that agency is stripped from women and how those things can prefigure this other thing that that is happening and how those two things are actually interrelated and always have been um which is like it gets into some like wildly big capital b big ideas about like patriarchal society and imperialism and like what it what it is to strip identity from someone and why people want to do that um that that really goes hard man like this is such a movie to talk about um go ahead aaron i it it man i've like i've like six thoughts i mean i'm trying that's cool size like six thoughts here jason edit edit this in post jason uh okay so a few things first of all i i like your your point about uh and i i think i might disagree with it but i i like your point about this film arguing that technology does not change human nature uh that it it, it simply kind of uh uh accentuates it uh and that it brings up things uh, that were always in the past but brings them closer uh to the to the front uh for everyone to see i think that's especially interesting given and i'm just compare this to like the other big anime film from around this time. But I think specifically Ghost in the Shell is a film that is arguing the opposite. It is a film that is arguing that technology would fundamentally sure. change how we understand ourselves, how we present ourselves. I think I think those films are not just the soundtrack that I mentioned earlier, but like the use of mirrors and reflective surfaces, uh, the use of like a character coming to, uh, uh, you know, uh, an understanding of self-identity. I think there is a very interesting comparison there, despite the difference in like setting and whatnot. Yeah, Uh, no, I, and and also just what they're talking about fundamentally, right. About like identity and agency and what it means to be um, a person. Yes. uh, But where, where I do agree with you uh, about that point is I think that this film is like very rooted in like very classic, like even Freudian ideas of like uh, uh, how we view others. I think that like specifically the, the Madonna horror complex uh, Freud's ideas yes. there are like kind of the thing I think specifically uh, with the character of me mania uh, and then also the character of Rumi uh, as well um, I think that the way that this this movie handles uh, me mania as a stalker who is from the very beginning of the film set up as the kind of main antagonist and it certainly is you know, a bad guy, right? But I think the way that it tricks you into empathizing with Rumi to a certain extent is is very effective. Um, from the beginning of this film, you are constantly uh, seeing uh, Rumi as uh, Mima's uh, manager and Tadakoro uh, as Mima's agent kind of pitted against each other, right? And Rumi is this right. kind of more uh, sympathetic, like uh, considerably uh, female character in her life who is concerned with keeping her out of uh, uh, or keeping her out of a career that is uh, exploitative, right? Uh, and and to a certain degree, uh, seemingly ostensibly, uh, kind of reasonably concerned with that, right? Uh, I think that that not just Japanese, uh, uh, you know, kind of film and uh, tele- television industries, but like every uh, film and television industry can be extremely exploitative, uh, specifically of, of female characters. And I think that there is an instant kind of association that the audience makes uh, around certain scenes around sexual assault and rape uh, and and what Mima has to do in order to kind of develop her career in that manner. And I think that Tadakoro, as a character who is constantly pushing uh, for Mima to take on these roles, uh, kind of start showing more of herself uh, physically and emotionally to the world, um, I think that that like 
maybe I'm like showing my ass here, but I think you like, even if you think Rumi is going a little too far or you think like, you know, I think I personally, of course, always respect a, a female actor's choice to, you know, do really tough scenes, really challenging material. And I think that uh, someone's kind of... Uh, ability to make a decision for themselves in that regard is like incredibly important, but I think you can't help but like sympathize with what Rumi is feeling. And so when the movie oh, makes that change, it's like you, you kind of like, wow, I did kind of show my ass there because the film is right. Right. Like Rumi really was just as controlling in a certain, and, and it's us. Right. It was. Yeah. 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 Um, but but it is important and crucial to point out that like it's not just Rumi. Like the film goes to great lengths to show that Rumi has a point, right? Like this is a sleazy television show that um, that uh, Mima is a part of, and it goes out of its way to like to depict that the writer is thinking about Mima's former status as this sort of like virginal idol, and is in fact exploiting that in order to raise ratings by putting her through. Um, a sexual assault scene and exploiting her her former image right and that is happening and the the photographer does it the show does it like it is it is telling you the the film explicitly tells you that like yeah these are like these are bad misogynistic people who are exploiting uh mima and her willingness or her um her former identity and her uh, presentation in order to capitalize on that and so like Rumi is given this this deeply sympathetic motivation but then of course it turns out that the the knife twists and the call was coming from inside the building right like Rumi herself also has internalized Freudian misogyny where if you're not a virgin you're a whore and uh women are not allowed to express themselves and their identities and their sexualities in a mature way. They have to be this or that um and it it turns it on it without without um, I, I think that they're, they're like a less complicated movie would, would, um, would set up that binary where it's like, well, like Totokuro was right, uh, because Rumi was wrong. I think the movie doesn't do that. Right. I think it, it is, it leaves space for it to say that like Totokuro and the, the cast of the show, like, and society itself for doing the things that it's doing to Mima, that's fucked and it's fucked also because it creates people like Rumi, right? And it, it forces um, Mima into situations like these, where, like, the perpetuation of that misogynistic uh, virgin horror um, dichotomy is what is producing the tension at the heart of this movie. Um, and it's something that that those people are guilty of, even if it is also affecting yeah. everyone. That, that, that I think, is, is my read as well. I, I do think it's uh, interesting, kind of quick side note, uh, there is kind of like a weird Ouroboros thing here where I think this film was very concerned with uh, kind of the legacy of specifically female pop stars. I think that I don't know enough about Japanese pop stars to speak on that, but I, I think specifically from like a, a like a, a Western standpoint, uh, a pop star like Madonna, I think is one uh, that who struggled with this and like used this same kind of material as a reference point throughout her career. I think it is very interesting that, um, uh, she did use uh, this from Wikipedia. She used uh, clips from this film uh, as part of a, a video for her song, what it feels like for a girl. Um, yeah, I dude. Wow. Madonna. How, how about that? Huh? Like also way to understand like, things. She is like, well, I mean, say what you want about Madonna, but I think that especially her work 
uh, kind of late 20th century is like maybe the most representative of uh, the the kind of the Madonna whore complex, uh, specifically filtered through a uh, Western Christian yes. puritanical society. Um, I mean, like, look at like a prayer. She's done some dumb stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, like a virgin. Yes, of course. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I wish I knew a little bit more about like the references that Satoshi Kon may have been making specifically uh, in Japanese culture. Uh, you know, again, this is dumb, dumb guy, uh, American uh, kind of interpreting this. Uh, but I did think that that was was very interesting. Uh, I do want to ask if uh, not to just like throw it up in the air here. I do want to ask if the. The kind of symbolic elements and thematic elements of this film uh tied together well uh, near the end with the changes that the plot makes, right? Because I think that the 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 plot and the story of this film, you know, there, there's these kind of plot twists near the end as Rumi becomes kind of the central villain of the film. And uh, at first I was kind of not sure how to feel about some of that. Like I could see what it was going for, for sure. uh, symbolically and thematically, uh, but I was a little concerned about whether it worked out uh, from a like a narrative standpoint. And I was wondering if anybody had any strong thoughts on that. I know where I came around, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just kind of throwing it out randomly. Does anybody well, have any I, thoughts? I think it's going to be easier for me to understand your question if you give your thoughts around that. Do you mean like it became less centralized, less focused as Rumi emerged as the villain? Or what is your uh, concern there? Uh, I think that the tra- the trade off for me as I was thinking of it, and I think I eventually squared the circle, but I think the trade off was the narrative started to make less sense, and not in like the purposeful way that it, the film is clearly going for. But I think that the film near the end, as I was watching it, it felt like it was sacrificing uh, this kind of narrative cohesion in a greater service to the thematic content, I guess is what I will say, uh, which I don't necessarily mind. In fact, I, I probably prefer films that, that do that as opposed right. to having some sort of tightly written story. Uh, but I think I actually kind of came around to, uh, I came around to it in like a weird way where I actually kind of appreciated that messier feeling in the last 20 to 30 minutes, kind of mm-hmm, adding mm-hmm. to that in a weird way. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. I, yeah. Go I'll, ahead, Jason. I'll, I'll I'm sorry. First. Um, no problem. Um, I think I agree that, uh, like, if we're looking at the arc of the film, I mean, I think I mentioned a little bit or touched on this earlier. I think that the, like, formally, the structure of the film mirrors in a very interesting way the, like, journey that the audience is on, not to be all like, mm, cinema, but like, the way that it becomes less hinged, the way that it becomes less easy to pinpoint and pin down and clearer answers just get muddier and muddier as we know more and more about the plot. And it's like, Oh, the big reveal that Rumi is, uh, you know, the villain and that she's been, uh, committing these atrocities, uh, to, to hold on to some, you know, um, virginal image of her protege. Uh, those things, like I can say that, and obviously it's going to get blown apart by some clear instance in the movie, right? Like it, the, the bubble bursts on every read of it. And I think that's very intentional. I think it worked for me because the less and less I felt like I was following the plot, the more and more I was following what like themes and messages the movie wanted to get to me about how like the technology and the way that we, we use it uh, muddies these things and makes them less and less clear and makes them more and more open to interpretation. I think that like, structurally it worked for me very well i don't think i needed to follow and you know every time i watch this movie i notice a little bit of something different i don't think i need to follow every single plot beat and think how does this reconcile with the previous plot beat for me to think that it's quote-unquote effective you know 
Sure. No, I think that makes sense. Uh, and I guess I, I really, I mean, obviously I loved watching this movie. I think Rumi is a particularly, um, rewarding and fascinating character to visit again upon rewatching this movie. Um, the sort of, I guess like my viewing of like the movie's sort of spiral, I guess like last 20 ish minutes. Um, but I guess even before then with me knowing what the outcome would be, it was easy enough for me to be like, and I know this isn't the case for everybody. It's just like, you know, my own lens, but the fact that what follows is a result of what, you know, the industry and this structure and the world does to, uh, as it's been said, you know, that intersection point, what it does to women, what it does to like very publicly facing figures and artists. Um, and like, you know, the, the diminishing shelf life of like female idols is like a really interesting idea that maybe doesn't get fully fleshed out. I think it's kind of a, a means to a greater end for this movie. But you know, the, the fact that Rumi is potentially on the other end of it, you know, Mima's uh, on one side. And then after all said and done, like Mima could, you know, be as unsure of her, I, you know, identity by the end of it as, as Rumi is because the, the world is, is sort of done with her. Um, the, while I'm thinking of it, um, I'm plugging somebody else's work really quickly. Um, but as far as like, uh, the public and the industry treating people like assets, and not like people. Um, Spinsters is a basketball podcast that I recently got into. Uh, it's hosted by Haley O'Shaughnessy and Jordan Liggins. Um, I, I like sports. Uh, they recently put out an episode about like NBA players and like specifically those who are young and early in their careers, like getting drafted by a team and then being immediately traded to a different team. And, you know, people in general uh, only see, you know, the headlines or the transaction lines of like this person, you know, has, you know, they've been essentially effectively relocated from Los Angeles to New York down to Dallas. Um, and like, not nobody is able to see behind that curtain ever just because like, that's, not what is uh, allowed. Um, yeah, it was a fascinating listen. It made me, I mean, these two think perfect blue and, and sort of that separate discussion, like made me, they made me think of one another, um, and like really, uh, painful, sad ways, um, because there's a lot that we're essentially not seeing. Uh, yeah, two, two thoughts there. While we're shouting out other things, um, Aaron had talked a little bit about how he wished he had more context around Japanese pop idols in particular. I don't possess that either. Um, I will say that, that even in my rudimentary sort of understanding of that culture and, and of the Japanese entertainment industry in general, this is like, it, it's not surprising, but it's like very intimately, um, interested in critiquing those things. Um, I would say even like, I'm a, I was a big Terrace House fan. I, you know, am no longer, I don't think anybody is really a Terrace House fan anymore. Um, and in it somewhat appropriate ways, uh, to, to talk about here, but apologies to big Terrace House fans. But, um, in the, the first American, um, released edition of that boys and girls in the city, one of the final characters, um, or people on the show, Rico pin, uh, was an 18 year old, um, model and idol. And, was dealing with um, how her image was being repackaged and reutilized in sexual ways that she was not particularly comfortable with. Um, and this movie is, is commenting on all, all of that. Right. And I think it does such a good job of, of demonstrating how impossible the 
maintenance of image for womanhood is for people, right? Because everyone in this movie wants something from Mima. They all want her to be a certain way. And mm-hmm, all of mm-hmm. those things are contradicting, contradicting, and they all stem from a similar hate, right? Which is, which is a hatred for what Mima herself represents and what she has and what they want from her. All of those things, they get wrapped up in one another because the fact that she's not giving it to them means something about them or the fact that she has something that they don't have and that they want means something about them. But ultimately, it's fascinating, right? Because the way misogyny works and the way it operates is it's always actually about the hater, it's about the person who hates the woman and the fact that they are projecting something onto the woman that suggests something about them. And that's why Rumi works for me so well. Um, it's interesting, right? Because like to get, to get into Aaron's other point, um, I had sort of the inverse relationship with this where like, I didn't used to like the third act Rumi revelation because it was very tidy to me because like the transcendence of the second act where, um, Mima keeps waking up and she keeps waking up into shows and she keeps waking up into productions. Um, and she starts to say, am I real? Am I alive? Like, is this happening? Is this a dream? That all worked so well for me that I couldn't stand the idea that it was being tidied up, which is why the, the deconstructive read of the final scene works for me so well. Right. Which we talked about a little bit beforehand, but we'll, we'll get into, right. But, um, which is to say kind of what Cody was saying, which is that by the end of this movie, Mimi and uh, Mima and Rumi are sort of um, conflated and blended in a way that that suggests that coming of age as a woman might mean um, those things. And it's interesting. My final point, I guess, before I kick it over to Aaron, it's interesting that he said that uh, that Ghost in the Shell is about how fun- technology is fundamentally going to change us, whereas Perfect Blue has this this other interpretation where it's actually sort of re- revealing things that have always been there because the the way that those things reconcile and the way that they've always reconciled in my mind across sort of like cyberpunk media like neuromancer and um like blade runner all of those other things is whether or not the technology itself is the locus of a um categorical change or it's retrospectively revealing something that had always been true about the human race and about human nature. The overarching message and theme of that is that we as human beings need to change the way that we see ourselves and think about ourselves, whether or not it was ever true, the way we think, the way we think that there might be an inherent identity, the way that there might be an inherent self, or that had never been true. What is true now is that the center will not hold, right? That that identity is something different now, or we understand it differently now than we had. And it's something that we both have more agency over and less because it's something that is both more real because it's something we generate ourselves, and less real because it's something that is fundamentally constructed by people. It, it's, you know, uh, existentially it's, it's like essence does not precede existence. Existence precedes essence. Knowing that, means knowing that fundamentally we are our own stewards, right? And technology reveals that because it reveals the ways in which identity has always been artificial, or in the case of something like Perfect Blue, it reveals that as technology changes, our relationship to who we are can fundamentally become something different because now we have the means to do that. Either way, now we know that that 
uh, essence does not precede existence. And what does that mean? And what does it mean going forward? And as Perfect Blue says, what does this mean for women uh, with everything else that women have to deal with, particularly the fact that when you are a woman, it is not ever just your own identity. Your identity is contingent upon what everyone else wants from you and what they're going to try to make you give them. Um, and you have to reconcile with all of those things in order to be a fully developed person. Yeah. I, th- thanks for rebringing that point up. Cause I wanted to bring it up again and I didn't Hell know yeah. how to do it, but, but now you just, you did it. So this is great. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about, uh, that point specifically um, with what you mentioned about Terrace House, I did think that around yeah. like five years ago or so, I think that there was a very weird um, trend specifically, and I can only talk about here in the United States, but there was a uh, a number of, of TV shows that were getting increasingly popular uh, that were all, or for the most part, mostly uh, foreign productions, foreign TV shows and whatnot ported over that stood in kind of stark contrast to uh, the American way of doing, uh, you know, those kind of shows and whatnot, right? I'm thinking not just of Terrace House, but something like Great British Baking Show uh, that were, uh, you know, kind of in familiar uh, genres of television, right? Reality shows, cooking shows and whatnot, but were were, uh, ostensibly kind of toned down. They were more personal, they were more intimate, and uh, they kind they of... They were quote-unquote realer, which was really yes. the problem, right? They were the real thing. These are characters uh-huh. just hanging out, just having a good time. There's not... Pe- people would say this when talking about Great British Bake Off and talking about Terrace House, like, there's not as much of the drama, They're not. there's not as many fast cuts as there are in American shows. Even if you look at something like uh, Gordon Ramsay's uh, cooking shows, you look at the, the cooking shows that he does overseas versus America, there's like a very stark difference there. Right. It was often, in fact, part of the branding of those shows, right? Like in Terrace House particular, in their circumstance, before every um, episode, they reiterate that there is no script. There is no um, uh, there is no plot to follow. All we did was set up this house with cameras in it and people are just going to do their thing. And so the idea was like this is. Right. This is not this is not constructed. It's real. It's it's actually something that's happening. And look how exciting that is. And and here, I guess here's where I maybe kind of disagree with 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 Harry's point about technology and the changing nature of of human society and whatnot. And I don't think maybe we actually disagree or not. Uh, but I think that yes, uh, you know, kind of modern entertainment and technology preys on uh, kind of innate human nature that has existed for a long time. But I think the thing that this thing is, is that this movie is pointing out that is different. And, and I think partially ghost in the shell and a bunch of other entertainment is that never before have we been so detached while being sold right. the promise of being intimately connected. Right. That, right. that that's that the, me, the irony there. Yes. And that to me is a sea change, right? That is a large cultural shift. That is not, that is preying upon human instincts and, and uh, uh, ways of interacting and whatnot. But that does feel very distinctly different than what came yeah. before. And maybe I'm a fool for thinking that, I guess. No, no. I, um, I think that that's, I think we can synthesize these ideas, right? Because I, what I was always saying is that there is no categorical difference. There is a difference of um, result, Right. Because of because of like the power that we now possess over one another and over reality itself. This is uh, a I do love this movie, but this is making me want to watch the uh, the sequence in the middle of Ghost in the Shell, which is is just uh, like 
images of people walking through streets and like uh, shop corn, you know, like shop displays and whatnot for like 15 minutes. Man, I almost, I almost picked Ghost in the Shell. I got to say, like, I was very close. They're right next to each other on my shelf. It's like it's like a top 10 uh, thing in movies for me. That's that sequence, uh, which is is without saying anything, uh, kind of communicating a lot of what this movie is communicating as well in a very interesting. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so maybe we do agree. Yeah, I I think I think that that you characterize that really well, which is that like um, like I had said before, like whether or not there's a fundamental change here, there is a there's a change of um, effect. Right. Where it where it's like more than ever now we are vulnerable um, to one another and to the world and to uh, having our identities be altered, because as we enter the Internet age, the, the ways in which we used to be able to demarcate ourselves from from other people and from our public presentations, they're breaking down right to the point where now there is no difference between the, the private self and the public self. And like my point was always there was never a difference, right? The idea that, that there is some primary self that exists within you that is sort of inherent, that's bullshit. Like you are constructing a version of yourself uh, for yourself exactly the same way that you're constructing a version of yourself for other people. They might be different in your eyes. You might think that one of them is truer than the other. That's not true. Right. That's scary. Oh boy, I, That's... I think we are going to disagree about the end. Of All this right. <laughs> I think we're going to disagree very strongly about the end of this film. Interesting. Uh, if Go I ahead. had to, to get. Well, uh, hmm. yeah, let's let's get there. Unless unless Cody's got more. Um, I think we're coming up on it. No. Well, OK. How do we how do we. So from a uh, I don't want to. Here's the thing. I don't want to start a battle that one I am pro- maybe going to lose. Two that I definitely don't know as much about compared to everybody else on this podcast. But the 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 kind of the strict the the reading of the film I think uh, of of solely the text is that at the end of the day, uh, Rumi uh, attempts to uh, uh, kill the main character, and there's kind of a, a chase sequence, kind of a fight. Uh, and at the very end of the film, uh, uh, Rumi is in kind of a mental hospital or, or some sort of a, a you know place where she's being taken care of after realizing that she had kind of this. Uh, I guess I don't even know the technical way to talk about it, right? But she was very clearly idolizing uh, uh, Mima and kind of viewing herself uh, in relation to Mima as like kind of an alternate personality. Yeah, for she her. she had a dissociative break, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Mima uh, is kind of leaving, uh, and uh, some of the workers at the facility are saying, "Like, is that is that Mima? Like, is that Mima? Like, no, that's just somebody who looks like Mima." And then Mima, stepping into the car, says, "No, it's me, the real thing." And then she she drives off, and the, the music plays, and that is where I th- I th- I think we're gonna disagree. I really think I think you'll be surprised. Uh, you think so? Go ahead. I I, I, I don't, don't I don't have the ironically don't have the con- or sarcastically okay. at all not a single bit uh i i view the end of this film pretty clearly in my mind uh as a woman coming to a greater understanding of her perception uh of, of kind of uh, of herself uh being inspired by the others in her life but no longer directly controlled by the others in her life um and i don't know maybe <laughs> i'm alone there Sounds like maybe I, think it's, I think it's wonderful that you feel that way. Um, I, I have to now bring my friend Derrida into the chat uh, because I have a deconstructive reading of Face this movie. Me, right? I'm in the chat right. now, Harry. Uh, <laughs> yuck, thank you. Yuck. It's yuck. Um, 
So we should talk uh, about the controversy that we talked about a little bit, right? Which is that there is a maybe it's an internet rumor, very appropriately, uh, in urban legend, perhaps, that in the original recordings of this movie, um, in that throughout that final scene, uh, Mima the character is played by Rumi's voice actress, which means that when when Mima is saying, yes, it's me, I am real, that is in fact Rumi saying that, right? Which throws everything for a loop because this was a movie about these, these two characters becoming one character or switching places. There is a very notable scene break where both characters lose consciousness in the street and then we cut two years later, which sort of, it creates this, um, this suggestion that... Uh, anything could have happened that in fact, like we might not be viewing reality the way that we often haven't re- viewed reality throughout this film. Uh, there's a precedent for that. And so basically uh, laying out the two sort of binaries, the two oppositions before we um, synthesize them, we're doing dialectics now, Aaron, but like Aaron's Aaron's reading is the conventional reading. There is a 180 deconstructive reading that says that in fact, Mima and Rumi switched places at that point. The Rumi that we're seeing in the mental hospital may in fact be Mima, uh, Mima herself. The Mima that we see that has become the acclaimed actress uh, and considers herself the real Mima may in fact be Rumi. Um, or we may not know who is who. Um, that is sort of the other deconstructive reading, right? Is that instead of becoming a, a character of greater agency, um, Rumi and Mima have in fact switched places. Mima has lost her identity entirely and may now think that she is Rumi thinking she's Mima or may think she's Rumi or may not exist at all, right? Yeah, so those I are the, the, those the are film our two. is also like not purposeful, but the film is like, yeah, yeah. I think the firm is film was purposefully semi vague, let's say, uh, in that manner. So, well, now we're like, getting, okay. All right, that okay. is my, that is my synthetic reading, right? Which is that like, I, I am closer to you, Aaron, than I thought, than I think you might think I am because I have never viewed the ending as literally stating that, uh, Rumi and Mima have switched places. Um, I think that, that Mima at one point says that thanks to her, I am who I am today. I think that the point of this movie is saying that whether or not they have switched places, Mima is a different person than she would have been. And she has been fundamentally altered by these experiences and has this different understanding of who she is and who she is allowed to be because of uh, Mima or excuse me, because of Rumi and because of these experiences. And in some senses, the two people have become one, but only in the like symbolic um, sense that Mima is now carrying with her a part of Rumi, just as Rumi has been carrying with her a part of Mima, because that is what it is to be a person, right? Is to be um, a conduit or affected a receiver of these things. Um, I think that that is the way that you can reconcile both of those readings, right? And I think that it, it allows for some of that darkness and vagary without being fully sort of... Um, deconstructive and ripping apart and in my mind i don't want to i don't want to be too um presumptive but i think that's what the movie wants ultimately is for you to synthesize both of those views into one and and make this about um about what it means to come of age as a woman like that rather than stating that one character has become the other it's more messy and complicated than that right i think cody Uh, Cody, what do you think yeah no i I, I think the the last um, option you put forth, Harry, is most like I think the best way for me to align kind of where I land. I, like one of my last sort of 
uh, noties as I was watching this movie is the idea that the the forming or specifically reclamation of identity is a necessarily violent process. Uh, in this case, literally violent. Like that's what Mima and Rumi are both doing, right? Um, by the end of this, by the. Agree. Uh, the, the tonal shift that the last couple minutes take, uh, you know, in contrast to the very, you know, the, the kind of climactic sequence that we see is so it's so stark. It's like almost parody. It's, you know, very sunny, uh, and pleasant, uh, in, you know, general demeanor. And that, that last shot of Mimo looking uh, into the, the rear view mirror and saying, you know, Hey, it's, you know, it's me. It's, you know, I'm the only one, um, like f- feels to me like, her being more not necessarily comfortable but her resolved in the like her as a a person putting on like a, right. a, a performance uh her like her being more She's resolved to put on a performance exactly yeah so i i don't know that's like shortish and swedish like where where i ended up that's the way in which this sort of conflation makes the most sense to me so so there's a Hmm. The, I don't. Hmm. Uh, so there's a the specifically the the point about the last lines of this film. There's there's kind of two things. It, it's really hard to actually get any sort of concrete information about this. Uh, so the Wikipedia specifically used to state uh, these lines were delivered by Rumi's voice actress, uh, and then the citation was needed, and eventually it got removed because there were there was no citation. Um, I, I I kind of like that idea. I think that's interesting. Um, from Googling around, there's actually something else that people pointed out uh, that I can only cite as a bunch of different Reddit posts, which really sucks to do on a podcast. It's so appropriate, uh, though, right? Like, this yeah. is exactly how yes. we should track down this information. Wow. <laughs> I just I literally wish there was like a director. Here's what what multiple different uh, random people on the anime subreddit said, and I do kind of trust them. Uh, but like a lot of them have pointed out that that is not the uh, voice actress uh, that that performed Rumi's uh, character. Uh, that is actually the only other point in the, the film in which uh, in which Mima's voice actress delivers the same tone that she used earlier in the film when talking to her mother on the phone. Oh, I have I have a thing to say about that. Did you read about the Japanese uh, taping of this VO? Uh, no. Okay. Okay. But, uh, so I, this is only the, the things we're talking yeah. about though is only, they changed it for the American dub. American dub right. does not even factor in here. Uh, right, but yeah, right. What, I, what is that? It is because, and this is based on uh, just one podcast I listened to, but, um, the character in Japanese is using a certain dialect as Mima, like the, uh, cham artist performer. And that starts to slip throughout the movie, um, intentionally as part of the character, uh, and when she's talking on her, on the phone with her mom, it's more of a, I think the term that the podcast I was listening to use was a yokel, more of like a, oh, from the she has a Kansai type. accent. Does she have a Kansai accent? Uh, I don't is, remember is if it was the... stated, but, but it's supposed to be like from out of town, not a, not a, to- not a native Tokyo. And, um, but, and then at the end in, when she's looking at herself in the mirror saying, no, I'm the real one. She is back in her like native dialect. Native dialect. Yeah. So Bro, just, just as so, color there, like it's built into the character. It's not by accident. Yes. I. So that is kind of my point, which makes me do a very dangerous thing where the thing that I didn't like about this line, uh, potentially being Ro- Rumi's voice actress, uh, I now must defend 
in the case of because I really like that reading specifically where she is herself when she's talking to her mother. And then at the end of the film, right, goes through this character growth uh, character arc. She is she is speaking in that manner because she she has a greater perception of herself. I like and ownership over herself. I don't like the fact that I am essentially making that reading versus the other kind of more deconstructive reading based on an Easter egg, you know, based on like an accent in a film, you know, that I mean, I think that the accents are important. No, I I don't know. But also like, I still given that information, I still think that, um, that my synthetic reading is the best one. And I think it's super interesting. This is so head ass. So I apologize, but like, uh, we're, we are having a similar dialectical battle that, um, that Rumi and Mima had, right. Where like the end of this movie is about these, these two people trying to own, this identity of Mima and they have, they have alternative ideas about who they want her to be. Um, and in my mind, the end of this movie is, is making the statement that like what synthesis is, what identity synthesis is as the result of like a dialectical struggle is not one or the other argument prevailing, but it's, it's actually, you know, in the, in the, the dialectical model, both of those arguments being, synthesized and put together uh into a new third thing that that bears resemblance to both i think that this movie is making the argument that that is what is happening to people because who you think you are and who everything else wants you to be necessarily have to blend which is the the psychological horror here right is that like you are not yourself because of course you're not entirely yourself because you are not the only person who owns you the world owns you, your circumstances own you, the the horrors of society and of misogyny and sexism and exploitation at the hands of capitalism, all of those things are creating you just like you're creating you. And in the end, what we have to do is reconcile all of those pieces of ourselves together by understanding that fundamentally they are all equally affecting and effective, right? And in an interesting way, whether or not, I mean, I I might've just sidestepped the entire argument, right? Because it's like, even if uh, Mima comes to the understanding that she is the real one and that she has this new sort of like self-determinate, self-possessed understanding of herself, I think she does that by getting to where I just, described right and so like there's almost a sense in which whether or not this movie is is literally um you can read it straight you can read it deconstructively you can read it synthetically it's all going to the same place right it's i wonder if if, like satoshi kona has he defeated deconstructionism (laughs) wow amazing I, I, so I, I think we we actually probably mostly I mean little nitpicky things about voice acting and whatever aside I think we we do mostly agree I guess my only question would be the the main point to me that you describe it as like a psychological horror and I agree that that is happening through the rest of the film to me the ending does not feel like a psychological it does not feel like a horror to me right i i do not think that the that synthesis is i think there are certainly horrific elements of it displayed throughout the rest of the film but i think at the end here the acceptance that others help to make you who Mm -hmm. you are is not something that to me in the very final moments uh is is played as critical it's it's triumphant to me, it is triumphant. Maybe that's kind of the thing. And that's, I think that's why I'm so like against a fully deconstructive reading is it reads this 
kind of in the same way. I, a lot of people like interpret the end of like Blue Velvet this way, but like interpret it. I, I interpret. Oh boy, I I have a full on deconstructive reading of Blue Velvet, but we'll we can talk <clears> about <throat> that later. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, the ending of this to me does feel that way. And I think that's part of why I, uh, you just want I, Mima to be happy, dude. It's, <laughs> I just, I just want her to, yeah, be a successful actress, make a ton of money, uh, write a, just a best selling autobiography about, you know, her, her crazy younger days. And then, you know, that, that's it. Yeah. That's all I want. Well, I mean, I like, have that. I think I think that there is a there is a triumphant reading of this, right? Which is what Cody said. Where like she is an actress, right? So like this isn't in, in part. Uh, it's it's a um, it's an exploration of what it takes to be an actress, right? This is a character who is struggling to become an actress, who is struggling to um, rebrand herself, and by the end of the movie, she does it, right? And whether or not you read the darkness into this movie that I do, or you read it triumphantly the way that you do Aaron she is a person who found out what it takes to be an actress <laughs> I think okay well wow uh here we are at just over the length of the film it is a sign of quality um where are we at with respect to notes is everybody uh ready for our final segment cool uh Harry are you okay. ready to help us i would love to bring in uh, bring in the best segment of all the segment we like to call <gasps> cody's noties wow thank you uh, as always for that uh, blessed introduction uh we're recording this on easter sunday <laughs> so prayers up wow um yeah we've uh we've had a lot of fun today on try love getting sad and fucked up uh over perfect blue um i woke up this morning and decided uh, let's do some try lips uh for those unfamiliar that is our attempt at reconstructing the world famous family friendly uh question mark game where uh you take a, a story you fill in the blanks with some parts of uh, parts of speech in other words, uh, to create a fully fleshed out story, uh, what I've done here is put together uh, a similar story with with gaps in it, um, based somewhat off of the uh, the story that we just got done discussing. So, in the order of uh, Harry, Jason, Aaron, I don't know if you just heard Chaco uh, fuck up a door somewhere in this apartment. I did. Um, nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, he uh, he has risen indeed. Hallelujah. Um, but we'll go through, uh, I will ask, uh, for some stuff and hopefully we'll create a, a, a nice yarn here. Um, so without further ado, uh, Harry, from you, could I please get a name? Uh, Rumi. Rumi, huh? Nice. That's what I'm going with. Okay. Uh, who do I have? Jason, from you, could I please get an occupation? Spinster. Very uh, prescient. Uh, Aaron, from you, could I please get a verb? Uh, shoot. <laughs> I knew it! I knew you! Uh, it's uh, Aaron's okay. gun guy is, Grossman wait, is, making her appearance. Uh, spinster, uh... Yeah, if isn't that somebody who helps... If it your time, it's an okay. occupation. Hey, right. yeah, cool. yeah. We have fun. Uh, Harry, an adjective, please. 
lonely <laughs> going off of the whole spinster thing. Very nice. Um, oh boy. Jason, from you, could I please get another occupation? Oh Lord. Um, uh, director. Huh? Uh, Aaron, an emotion, if you please. Uh, hmm, joyfulness, whatever, whatever form you need that to take. Yeah, joy. No, for sure, I got you. Yeah. yeah, perfect. I was uh, gonna say asking asking a marketer for to name two professions is is quite a big ask. If if we knew, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I should have known better. Uh, Harry, um, could I please get from you an exclamation? Oh boy, um, shit. Uh, well, there it was. Shit. <laughs> Very good, um, Jason. Uh, another exclamation. Ow. Ah, and let's see, Aaron. Uh, could I get a noun from you? Uh, gun. <laughs> um, and Harry, from you, could I please get another name? Mima. Wow, fascinating. Wow, he really has risen. Um, he's discovered how bountiful uh, the th- things on doors are that are on springs that you go boy yo yo yo. Yeah, um, don't make that a clip. Uh, who's next? Jason, uh, an adjective, please. Rumi. <laughs> oh, this is, gonna get, this is going to get wacky. <laughs> oh. uh, Aaron, could I get from you the name of a former Trilove guest? <laughs> uh, who, do we, who do we want to toss this one? Uh, oh, man. Uh, I'll, I'll do my brother, Nick. Give the give the old no. Grossman brother a shout out. Yeah, for Seven sure. Shout outs to Nick. Yeah, uh, come on the pod, Nick. Uh, for uh, oh, he was actually on that one. I was going to throw him under the bus. He was physically present on that episode. Yeah. Um. So shout outs, uh, appropriate shout outs. Uh, Harry, from you, could I please get uh, yet another occupation? Jesus, I um, assassin. I'm I'm going off of the shooting and gun stuff. For sure. You said Jesus, and I was like, oh, close enough, but I'm glad we went that route. Um, Jason, could I please get from you uh, the name of a fast food chain? Taco Bell. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. Um, Aaron, from you, could I please get the name of a uh, a different fast food chain? Uh, gotta go Culver's on this one, repping the Midwest. That is the most, yeah, that is the most gun adjacent uh, franchise. It very much is. Uh, yes. Uh, Culver's for uh, the fascists. Hey, uh, that is a fact. Um, probably, hopefully, allegedly, don't sue us. Harry, uh, from you, could I please get a, a type of pet? Um, a gecko. Nice. Gordon in the house. Uh, Jason, could I please get an emotion? Angry. Uh, Aaron, a type of public space, please. Uh, a, uh, library. Very good. Uh, home stretch, I think, hope here. Uh, Harry, an adjective? Menacing. 
Very good. Uh, Jason, um, could I get from you another exclamation? Well. Nice. Uh, Another exclamation. Wow. Uh, Aaron, a famous person. The name of a famous person. Uh, mm, uh, the poet Rumi. <laughs> did wait? Did did you just <laughs> Google Rumi, famous please. people? No, I Googled. I just wanted to make sure I was getting the name right. Uh, the poet Rumi. That's spelled the same way as it is in the <laughs> movie. Spelled right? the same way. I would like to the poet Rumi, please. The poet. Rumi. Yeah, I, I was not going to do uh, it but any just, just referred to as Rumi, please. Uh, you know. Oh, just referred to as Rumi. You don't want me yeah, to say the poet Rumi? Yeah, we don't need the honorific Rumi? there. Yeah, just just Rumi. Okay. Well, uh, I'll, game time decision on that one. Uh, Harry, a type of weather, please. Um, stormy. Brilliant. And finally, uh, Jason, could I please get from you the name of a movie? Demolition Man. I. Oh yes, <laughs> I knew it. All right. Um, four stars from the Daphnis on Devolution Man. That's I bought it on Blu-ray while I was watching the movie. You didn't Hell want yeah. to do 2015's Room? Oh, uh, that would have been funny also. Uh, also, four stars from Cody on Letterboxd, too. Wow. No, that's uh, thank you, uh, person in the audience. Uh, I, we've got everything filled out now. Um, we've got all, all the blanks filled. So without further ado, this is Trilibs colon Identity Crisis. <clears throat> My name is Rumi, and I'm a spinster, or at least I used to be. I would shoot endlessly in front of lonely crowds of people. I hate that. Uh, but when I announced uh, that I wanted to, but when I announced that I wanted to try my luck as a director instead, my ja- my fans were joyful. People would shout at me in public. Shit, they would yell. Ow! I also received <laughs> abuse digitally in the online community known as Rumi's Gun. <laughs> oh boy. Eventually, a user named Mima claimed to be the real me and began making roomy proclamations. They suggested that I detested my agent, Nick Grossman. They incorrectly stated that I would be exploring another career path, this time as an assassin. They posted in an online diary that I would henceforth be sponsored by Taco Bell, when everyone knows I prefer Culver's. Mima claimed they knew what was best for me, but really, they just wanted me to be the version they preferred. One day, a diary post from Mima offered intimate details about my pet gecko, which revealed to me that I was being stalked. I was angry, but I had an idea. I went to the nearest library and looked for a person with a Taco Bell. Uh, I forgot. Uh, somebody give me a noun. I missed brain. One. Brain. Taco Bell brain. Perfect. We're playing it as it lies. That's another. I feel like thing. I've got a Taco Bell brain. <laughs> I look for a person with a Taco Bell brain sitting right here. My name's Cody. Among the many menacing people I saw, I found my culprit. Well, I shouted as I tackled them to the ground. Just as I suspected, it was the poet Rumi. With Mima gone, the abuse soon subsided, and I was able to live my life normally again. Still, on stormy days like this one, when I'm alone and watching Demolition Man, I can't help but think about Mima and anyone else out there who might be holding a grudge. The end. Woo! Very good. That sounded like a John Waters movie. <laughs> Shit! Ow! Tri- Trilibs is really like a warm blanket, just slowly settling over me every time. It's, it's so I, good. love to hear it. It is. I it appreciate is that. Comfort. I appreciate that, and I figured we could use a warm blanket following this this harrowing adventure. Yeah, we never talked about the fact that this movie is very difficult to to watch, huh? Like it's yeah. actually very tense and scary and upsetting. <laughs> now, here's the thing. 
as the kicker, imagine watching it sitting next to your crush in a theater. That is what I did when this movie came by from G Kids a couple of years ago, and it was. I didn't know that you had a crush theater back then. Oh, thank you very much, Cody, for trilibs once more, and always for the noties. Uh, Thank you, Harry. This was a wonderful pick. Thank you for for uh, for choosing this one. I'm I'm really glad we got to finally talk about it. Um, Yeah. Also, if the Trilon ever hears this, uh, play more anime, you cowards. Uh, I have a I have a set that I could set up for you, uh, John. What <laughs> so if, what hit if me just, up. What if we just rent out the Trilon when it's back in uh, back in business, and we can just animate up? We'll Does pretend that count? <gasps> Does that count as them playing more anime if you I pay them to play more anime? <laughs> I, think I think it, it counts. counts. All right. It, it officially. I'm getting word. Uh, Yes, it counts. Um, this has been our episode about Perfect Blue. Please tune in next week for another episode of the Nonlon Boys Picks. Uh, it's a mystery to all of us now, except I forget who's next in line. Cody? I think Cody's next. Ooh. Cody. Uh, big. Oh, boy. Yeah, big shoes to fill here, uh, fella. But um, you will have that third shoe to fill. Uh, and Aaron will come up, bringing up the rear with the fourth. Um, this has been our episode about Perfect Blue 1997. It is available through many different streaming channels. It is unfortunately not yet available at the Trilon, but uh, you know we'll be there when it is. Uh, if you go to the Trilon, or if you want to find ways to support them, um, you can go to Trilon.org uh, to purchase uh, tickets, and you can become part of their trilon club membership um this is a really poor way to sell the membership but they have a lot of cool ways for you to support them uh while they're not at full capacity but should you decide to go and be there in person double mask uh get vaccinated if you can first uh and just be a careful considerate person um trilon has rules that are meant to limit the spread of COVID 19 while the pandemic is still going on and it is still going on uh my name is jason daphnis and you can find me on twitter at nintendoofus our podcast is trilove you can find us at trilove podcast on twitter that's right. Uh, and hey, just to contextualize this a little bit, just think at the end of this, uh, we're going to have four non-lawns and listeners everywhere are going to be looking at their feeds and scream from the top of their lungs. What's going on? Uh, I've been Cody Narvison and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I've been Harry. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, I am Aaron and you can find me on Twitter at RB please. I don't know why I said it like that. Uh, were you debating whether or not you were officially off your social media break? Because it seems like you are, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't think that's true. I don't mind your own business. You changed your name. No, it doesn't I say social media break sorry anymore. Oh, that's true. I am still locked, though, and I am still on hiatus. I just thought I had a pretty funny uh, Twitter handle, so I did change it. That doesn't. I see. Well, on that note, There is no way illusions can come to life. You should stop dreaming soon.